Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us. And no time for a Friday feeling today. In fact, I actually don't know where to start. We certainly need more than two eyes this morning. One eye on strong U.S. jobs numbers. But I have to say, they'll keep us guessing, however, on what the Federal Reserve does next. I'll explain shortly because the other eye is watching the drama playing out in California, where a lender to the tech industry known as FVB Financial, that's going to happen a few times, remains under severe stress amid significant deposit outflows. Now, take a look at this. Shares of the firm tumbling more than 60% pre-market market before the shares were suspended. And that followed a similar 60% plunge on Thursday. I'll explain too, if we can, what's happening there shortly too. Now, I think the key point here is it's just one bank. And it's a bank that relied heavily on the tech sector for deposits that we know is struggling more broadly. And, and this is key. But I have to say, its plight has spooked what feels like the entire financial sector. And it sort of plays into many of those worst case scenario fears like broader financial instability in a rising interest rate environment because we still have too high inflation. And that's an even more pronounced pickle for the Federal Reserve to be in. But just to be clear, we aren't anywhere near that yet. Though fears that SVB might be a sign of broader banking problems triggered a sharp pullback in some of the major U.S. averages on Thursday. In fact, the four biggest U.S. banks losing more than $50 billion in market cap during the session. For now, futures are turning mostly higher. A big improvement from where we were a few hours ago, thanks to those just-released jobs numbers. I can give you a look at Europe too, though. European banking stocks are still seeing a sharp pullback, a case perhaps of investors playing catch-up with the US price action on Thursday. Now, the question is, is this all an overreaction tied to the issues at one bank? The irony here, of course, is that 24 hours ago, we were discussing the absolute resilience of the US economy and the need for even higher Federal Reserve interest rates. So my view, karma heads perhaps are required at this moment and keeping that third eye on the fundamentals, which remain strong. Now, the jobs numbers show the US adding a stronger than expected 311,000 jobs last month. The devil, however, is in the detail. That headline number, though, at least argues that the Federal Reserve does need to press on with interest rate hikes. The big question, will bank stress give Powell pause about moving more aggressively in the future? We're going to answer some of these questions over the next hour. I hope you're still with me. Someone who is with me, though, Matt Egan, he joins us now. Matt, great to have you with us. Good luck (laughs) explaining all of this. Um, The CEO of SVB reportedly urging everyone to stay calm as, as the company works through its funding crisis. Just let's just take a step back. Help us understand what's happening And why investors got spooked in the last 24 hours? Well, Julia, you know, for the first time in a long time, we are witnessing some real concerns about the health of the financial industry. I think the question is whether or not the situation with Silicon Valley Bank is a one-off 
or if it's a canary in the coal mine. Now, as you mentioned, shares have been halted pending news. We're waiting for news. I haven't seen anything put out from the company at this point. Uh, the stock fell 60% yesterday, 6-0, down, as you mentioned, sharply pre-market before trading was halted. Now, this comes after, earlier this week, Silicon Valley Bank, they announced that they are raising money in order to meet demand from depositors. They said that they are uh, selling more than $20 billion of securities, raising $2.5 billion to try to shore up their balance sheet. And, you know, we are hearing reports about some venture capital firms advising their uh, tech startup invest uh, companies that they've invested in to be careful with their money in uh, this bank, which, of course, raises the specter of a, you know, a run on the bank, which is not something we want to hear. But um, we should note that not all banks are created equally. You know, obviously, Silicon Valley Bank catered to the tech industry, which has been struggling significantly. Other banks uh, do not just focus on one sector. I mean, you think about Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, all those banks, you know, they have clients who are oil companies and retailers and media companies and small businesses. So they're much more diversified and they may not be facing the same kind of pressure that SVP is. But at the same time, you know, this there's clearly concern about the broader industry because yesterday we saw that banking stocks had their worst day in uh, nearly three years. Regional banks got hit. And even those big banks like J.P. Morgan, they fell sharply yesterday, Julia. Yeah, and I think what we always have to remember in, in these situations is that investors jump several leaps ahead instantly. So in an environment where you've got concerns with one specific bank, but then everyone looks at themselves in the situation and says, oh, dear. But we're in a situation where the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates because inflation's too high. They have to continue to do that. But if we've got a situation where there's problems in the banking sector, now what do they do? And I feel like we made all of those jumps in the space of one trading session. And we need to actually have calm heads and cooler heads prevail. And the key word that you used there was diversification, because this bank was so directly connected to, to your point, Silicon Valley, to venture capitalists, all their deposits were taken or the majority of their deposits were taken from this sector. And when we talk about job losses and challenges and valuations dropping, it's all really based in the tech sector. So we're seeing shaking for one bank. And I don't think we can translate what we're seeing for this bank across the broader sector, particularly if we compare it to the financial crisis and the sheer extent of regulation, of oversight, stress test, Matt, that you often talk about, that the banking sector now receives. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely, Joel. You know, and think in some ways it's kind of amazing that we haven't seen this sort of um, concern uh, about the financial markets, about banks until now. When you think about how aggressively the Fed has raised interest rates, of course, that has hammered the housing industry and it has really hurt the tech industry. But we really haven't seen any major, major cracks in the credit markets or in the financial markets um, until maybe now. But to your point, some of this may be an overreaction. Um, you know, investors are jumping to the next logical conclusion about what banks could be um, under pressure as well, even though a lot of these banks have different business models, models, they have different customer bases, and so they're not all the same. But one thing I should note here, Julia, is there's already some talk about whether or not the government should have to step in here to provide some support. Um, a billionaire investor, Bill Ackman, he was tweeting about how he thinks the government needs to 
prop up uh, SVP Bank here by uh, maybe trying to protect depositors because of how central the tech community is to the economy. He uh, said on Twitter, the risk of failure and deposit losses here is that the next least well-capitalized bank faces a run and fails and the dominoes continue to fall. Yes, we've gone through an era, years and years and years, where there's always a backstop and we want it to continue. Matt, great to have you with us. Thank you, Matt Egan there. Now, that drama playing out in the banking sector comes as a new U.S. jobs report headline number comes in much stronger than expected. The U.S. reporting a whopping 311,000 jobs added in February. That's some 100,000 jobs net higher than Wall Street was looking for. But, and it's a significant one, wage growth actually came in weaker than expected and the unemployment rate rose. Rahel Solomon is here. It's never simple and we should always celebrate jobs being added. But what we're really looking for in these numbers is whether or not the hints and the, the, the story behind it is inflationary. What do you make of these numbers, Rahel? Right. Julie, it's always what it all means, right? So another stronger than expected jobs report, as you pointed out. Where have we heard that before, Julia? So 311,000 jobs, uh, stronger than expected, as you pointed out. But I should say that the six-month average is actually closer to 300. 43, so slightly cooler than that. Uh, we've been in this range, Julia, of 250,000 jobs to about 500,000 jobs being added each month for the last year, with the exception of a few months where we saw even stronger numbers than that. And essentially what it means is that the U.S. labor market is remaining really strong, stubbornly strong for some. And so I want to also point you to uh, the unemployment rate, which did tick up to about 3.6%. The labor force participation rate, the percentage of the U.S. workforce uh, actually actually participating in the workforce. That also ticked up ever so slightly to 62.5%. Julia, for context, pre-pandemic, that level was closer to 63.3%. That said, we did see about 420,000 Americans enter the workforce. So that is good news because, as you know, we have had some uh, challenges on the supply side in terms of labor. I want to also show you sectors, and then we can sort of parse through what this means. When we look at where we saw the strongest job gains, and I think we can pull this up for you here, Julia, a leisure and hospitality adding more than 105,000 jobs for the month of February. Restaurants adding uh, 70,000 jobs there. Tech, uh, we should say, tech headlines have been really making the news lately, but tech only represents about 6% uh, of the workforce here. So we did see some declines there. So what does all of this mean? Well, Julia, I think you hit on it perfectly there when you talked about wages, right? It's not that the Federal Reserve uh, is trying to see Americans make less money, but not necessarily when it comes at the expense of inflation. And wages did moderate 0.2% on a monthly basis, 4.6% annually. You know, Julia, over the last year, we've seen those annual wages up higher than 5%, right? We've talked about wages being 5.2% at one point. So that is uh, a sign of good news. Will this ultimately be enough to encourage the Fed to perhaps raise rates 25 basis points versus 50 basis points? Unclear because we also get CPI next week, which we know will also be critically important. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Sort of real Goldilocks scenario if we could continue to add jobs but you're adding, in this case, I think, lower wage jobs. So it's mm. bringing the average down, the average wage down. And the yeah. participation rate is increasing. So that's pushing the unemployment rate effectively higher. Right. Um, I mean, if we could continue like this, then the Fed could do less rather than more and continue to add jobs. 
Well, you know, it's an interesting point, Julia, because it almost feels as if we're seeing two different labor forces, right? As you pointed out, uh, we are seeing some some job losses in tech, which, you know, presumably tend to be higher paying jobs. But when you look at sectors like retail, when you look at sectors like leisure and hospitality, which uh, are lower wage jobs, we're still seeing gains there and we're seeing wages moderate. So on the one hand, we are seeing gains, but they're lower paying jobs, presumably. And it also speaks to where we're still spending services, travel, hotels, restaurants. So it's a, it's a very interesting time to be watching the economy, for sure. It, it certainly keeps us busy. Um, it's, I think it's going to raise comments about this no landing scenario. I'm not mm. saying I'm not saying it. But um, yeah, great points. Rahel, great to have you with us. Thank you. And um, to Rahel's point, actually, later we've got the head of the Intercontinental Hotels Group to talk to us about what they saw last year, what they are anticipating this year, and of course, hospitality hiring. That's in around half an hour's time now to China, where President Xi's historic third term has been officially endorsed by Beijing's political elite, making him the most powerful head of state in generations, as Selena Wang reports. Julia, in China, the role of president is largely ceremonial, but it is still symbolic and important that Xi Jinping has secured an unprecedented third term as China's president. It's a reminder that he's got an iron grip over the country. It solidifies his control and makes him the longest serving head of state of communist China since its founding in 1949. Now, back in 2018, Xi had scrapped the two term limit on the presidency, meaning he can stay on as head of state for life. But his true power comes from being the head of the party and the military. These are roles he was already reappointed to at the Communist Party Congress back in October. So what we saw today was political theater. He got more than 2,900 unanimous votes from China's rubber stamp legislature. Then they stood up for a standing ovation. At this ongoing big political event, we'll also see reshuffles in leadership roles in state organizations. These are all changes that will further increase Xi's power. On Saturday, Li Chang, one of Xi's most trusted protégés, he's expected to be chosen as China's premier. He was the former party secretary of Shanghai and oversaw the brutal two-month COVID lockdown last spring. And the team of officials that run China's economy is also getting a major shakeup. The four main men, unlike their predecessors, have not been educated in the West or are seen as having little experience dealing with international financial organizations. But what they do have in common is that they're close allies of Xi. So what should we expect to see in this coming term? We should expect to see increasing Communist Party control at home and this continued assertive, more aggressive foreign policy abroad. Beijing views its actions as trying to restore China's rightful standing in the world as a great power. And it looks like there will not be an easy off-ramp to U.S.-China tensions. Xi Jinping's view of the relationship is turning more pessimistic. Earlier this week, he made a rare move in directly accusing the U.S. of leading a campaign to contain and suppress China. Then the following day, China's new foreign minister warned that conflict with the U.S. is inevitable if the U.S. does not change course. To the people here in China, the message from Beijing is that the U.S. is trying to choke the country off. Julia. Seven people have been killed in a shooting at a Jehovah's Witness Center in Hamburg, Germany. The city's interior minister has said an unborn baby was among the victims. The gunman also died at the scene. Senior international correspondent Jim Bitterman joins us now on this. Jim, a a tragedy, clearly. What more do we know about the gunman involved in this and any potential motive? 
Well, that is the question that the German police are still looking into, Julia. They, are, in fact, uh, have been investigating that all day long. They have only identified him as a 35-year-old former member of the Jehovah's Witnesses who left the organization about 18 months ago, according to a security official, not on the best of terms. It's not clear whether he left voluntarily or he was expelled. But in any case, last night, he came into the place, their, their kingdom hall, as they call it, uh, where they were having a meeting uh, last evening. Just after that meeting, he started his attack. Uh, he had uh, with him a, a semi-automatic pistol, and he fired nine magazines of shots. Uh, according to the uh, security officials, this is not something that uh, is uh, terrorist-related. They don't believe. They're checking into the, medical, the mental state uh, of the gunman. Uh, and as you mentioned, in fact, there were six people that were shot, six adults shot, and a seven-month-year-old uh, uh, unborn child who was also killed in the attack. Um, then there are eight people who are injured. And according to uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, in fact, some of those injured may succumb to their injuries and may die as well. So we're keeping a tad track on it now, um, Julia, but I think that's uh, the way things stand at this moment. And we may get more on the gunman later on. Julia? Yeah. Any further updates, we will bring them to you, Jim, for now. Thank you for that report. Welcome back to First Move. The reminder of that key U.S. jobs data for February employers adding 311,000 workers last month, better than expected, even if it was down from January's blockbuster read. Analysts were expecting, just to give you a sense of context here, payrolls to rise by 205,000 jobs net. The unemployment rate in the meantime ticked higher to 3.6%, and average hourly wages rose 0.2%. Joining us now, Neela Richardson. She's chief economist and co-head of the ADP Research Institute. Neela, always great to have you on the show. I feel like the Federal Reserve should be comforted by these numbers because we've seen an easing of some of the upward pressure on wages, but still a bumper jobs growth number net. <laughs> Good morning. I would say it would, well, good morning for me. Good afternoon for you. <laughs> I, I would say that it was a, a mixed feeling of comfort, mm. not quite as comfortable as they'd like to be at this point in their rate hiking cycle. For one, yes, jobs growth is really strong and really solid, and we saw that accompanied with a moderation in uh, earnings, but the composition of those earnings has changed over the course of the last six months. It's much more dominated by low-paying jobs. When we look at ADP, at our payroll numbers, and we pay uh, about 25 million workers in the United States, and, and we account for this composition effect, we still see that the moderation in wage growth is very, very slight. It's very modest. And it's going to take a long time to go back down to pre-pandemic levels. Oh, you see, this is really important, why it's so great to chat to you about this. So what you're saying is, is that while we're adding some of the lower waged workers, which is pulling down that average wage growth, wage growth number that we're seeing, Really, it's very slight when you look at the, the aggregate picture. What are you hearing from some of the SMEs, the smaller and medium-sized businesses, about what they're expecting to pay in terms of, of workers and how perhaps concerned they are about, one, the ability to hire, but also economic slowdown? Because they're having to calculate all of these things, too. Yeah, it's a complicated picture for small firms. What they're telling us, and we surveyed them very, very recently, they're, they're telling us that it's still 
hard to find qualified workers. Yeah. In fact, that is their number one concern. And you see that in the AT ADP numbers that we released earlier this week, that small firms are still competing and being outmanned by larger firms. They can't find the talent. But there is some sense that this is easing. Uh, it's a little easier to find talent than it was uh, six months ago. So that's good news, even though it's still hard. It's the number one concern for small firms. It outranks all other concerns. Close second, though, is the economy. And they're mm. still trying to figure out how to grow in an economy with so much uncertainty. Yeah. And in a rising interest rate environment. Does that mean, and I know it's difficult to predict, that we're in a a very different jobs market in a rising rate environment than we have been in the past, simply because of the challenges that we've been through and their inability to find workers and the, the competition that they're facing, that even in an economic slowdown, they might be reluctant to let those workers go, simply because the challenge, again, of, of rehiring and perhaps paying people more when you try and get them back um, is a huge concern too. I guess the question that I'm asking, I need to ask it more simply, is um, does it make... Um, jobs and the labor market that much stronger and sticky, even in an economic downturn? You know, that's a great question. The labor market is solid, it's tight, but it's incredibly fragmented. And different sectors of the economy are going to have different reactions to higher interest rates. Construction mm. and manufacturing, and we saw that with manufacturing in today's report, those are very interest rate sensitive sectors, and we saw a decline in manufacturing jobs. And so we're not going to see the sectors of the economy move in lockstep. And, and that's going to be a challenge in interpreting these job numbers. Uh, also, we're not in the same, even though the unemployment rate is similar as it was pre-pandemic, the jobs market is quite different. Mm. It's much tighter um, and there are many more job openings. And so that reluctance to let go of workers, you see that in our signals of layoffs are still below uh, pre-pandemic levels. Uh, it means that it's going to be persistently tight for much longer. And that's going to challenge the Fed to keep interest rates high and higher over the longer term, too. Yeah, and that's the ultimate key here. And I think you've said it perfectly in the past that, that the job state is great. The problem is that strength is coming at the cost of, of high inflation and managing that for the Federal Reserve here is the, the absolute and ultimate challenge. So when there's this debate going on behind the scenes of and Rahel Solomon, one of our um, reporters, was talking about it earlier, this decision between going a quarter of a percentage point and half a percentage point in terms of rate hikes for the Federal Reserve. The argument that you're making here is the emphasis still has to be on that the larger size hike, surely. They still have a well, lot of work I to do. I think the argument, yeah, well, I think the argument is no one's talking about a pause. And that's yeah. the important thing. Yeah. It's whether it's going to be a quarter or 50, but no one's saying no hike at all. And that is very different than just a couple of months ago where markets and analysts were convinced that there would be a Fed pause uh, in the first half of the year. I think that that is off the table, at least for the next meeting, probably for the next meeting after that. And I don't think we're going to see a decrease in interest rates this year. Yeah. This is where we cue the song by Beyonce, Single Ladies. Um, Mila, I want to get your take on something. Um, it was a Wells Fargo report, I believe, and it was talking about the impact of single women in particular on the labour force and that they'd grown three times faster than the broader labour pool over the last decade. Can you just give me some context on this and, um, you know, surprise me and shock me and tell me that um, wage equality 
even just for these single women has um, has been reached, she says with and a I, raised eyebrow. Yeah. I, I'm thrilled that you didn't ask me to sing the song. I was I was worried. I've <laughs> still got time. No. <laughs> we we know we know this, and I think we talked about this before that the pandemic has been incredibly challenging for women. Women took the bulk of the job losses. They had the in the United States and around the world, um, they also had the biggest challenges as being part of that care economy that was so hit by the pandemic. And so if you fast forward it, some of those challenges have not gone away. It's still very hard to find childcare. And that childcare has gotten even more expensive than it was before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that means that many married women with children are staying out of the labor market. And even proportionately, single women have advanced in into the labor market. Um, but overall, that advancement of women in the workplace has not resulted in a narrowing of pay gaps. And I think that's what's the most disappointing. We love to see an inclusive economy because that economy means that it's more positioned for growth. So the more women in the economy, the better. But if that comes at an expense of wages, um, it's problematic. And so there's still some more work to do to close these wage gaps. Yeah. It begins with talking about it. Thank you. Um, important um, conversation to be having. The whole thing, actually. And no singing, sadly, but we'll reconvene next time. <laughs> Neela, great to chat to you. Thank, Thank you. you. You never know what you're going to be asked. The Thank Chief Economist you. at ADP and the co-head of the ADP Research Institute. Speak soon. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move, a frantic Friday on Wall Street. Major U.S. employment news and fast-moving developments in the Silicon Valley bank banking crisis that has rattled global banking stocks. First to the jobs. The U.S. reporting a much higher than expected 311,000 jobs added to the U.S. economy last month net. But wage growth came in slightly weaker than expected and the unemployment rate ticked higher, as we've been discussing. In the meantime, U.S. stocks volatile overall in early trade as investors debate what all this means for the Federal Reserve's interest rate hiking path. We are very much data dependent. All this, too, as we wait news about the future of SVB, whose shares have been halted for trading for pending news. We will bring you that when we get it. They did, though, tumble, as we've discussed, more than 30 percent during trade on Thursday, the firm being forced to raise billions of dollars worth of capital to plug major losses as depositors flee. The big question to be asked, what all this means, if anything, for the entire banking sector? Well, I'm pleased to say we have expertise, huge expertise, joining us now to discuss. Mike Mayo for more, a senior bank analyst for Wells Fargo Securities. Mike, thank goodness you're here because we certainly need your wisdom and I read your note earlier this morning and you said the core issue at SVB is a lack of funding diversification. Can you just put that into English for, for my audience, please, and help us understand why taking money from tech firms, startups in Silicon Valley is so crucial to this story? Well, I think when you look at the industry as a whole, um, this might be an idiosyncratic a situation unique uh, to this bank. Uh, but the key word when it comes to the, the U.S. banking industry is resiliency. <laughs> and this is night and day versus the global financial crisis from 15 years ago. Um, then banks were taking excessive risks uh, and people thought everything was fine. Uh, now everyone's concerned 
Uh, but underneath the surface, the banks are more resilient than they've been in a generation. So that's resiliency of the balance sheets with the quality of their loans, resiliency of the business models with the additional capabilities from technology, and yes, resiliency of funding. And the funding is much more diversified. And banks can either have core funding, and those are savings accounts and checking accounts, or they can have overnight borrowings, what I call hot money, money that can leave in a nanosecond. And that hot money or what really brought down the failure of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, that's been reduced by over half in the last 15 years. So you have much more resiliency uh, in, in the funding. And so you know, if you have money in the bank, it, it's fine. This is not a liquidity issue. This is not a solvency issue. Banks are not about to fail in, in mass. This is not the global financial crisis 2.0. Uh, this might be an earnings event. It could be a stock event, um, but it's not anything bigger than that at the moment. Ha. Okay, so this is vitally important. So what you're saying is if you compare the financial system, and we're talking broadly now, small banks, medium-sized banks, large banks, the oversight that we see today from the Federal Reserve, the stress tests that these banks undergo, and the regulation that we've seen put us in a very, very different situation today in aggregate than we were pre-financial crisis. And I think that is very important for people to understand. However, if we just bring it back to the case of this Silicon Valley Bank, given everything that you've said, how come they're in this situation? And you don't have to be specific, but if all the rules and the guidelines and the regulations are in place, why do we find ourselves in a situation where one bank simply has the situation not under control? Well, it's partly a, a head scratcher. We're going to have to uh, mm. see as this plays out. Um, you know, any bank can discretionary say, hey, we're going to some of our assets, some of our securities, take some losses and fill the holes. So to the extent that, you know, a bank that, you know, for all we know, uh, you know, doesn't have fraud, doesn't have excessive leverage, doesn't have bad loans, chooses to take an action and has this sort of backlash uh, is something we're going to have to look at after the fact. Um, So, that seems to be more of a one-off. And if you take a discretionary move like this and you don't have a good reaction, then the other banks won't take that discretionary move. But I think over seeing all of this, you have to say, you know, thank you, regulators, for all the the moaning about regulation. Um, <laughs> the regulators are, are on top of this. So at least if you're a depositor or if you're a, a, a creditor or if you're the government or a taxpayer, you can say, all right, I don't have to worry about the banking system functioning. Banks should be like when you turn on the water every day. The water should come through the faucet. Um, You should be able to turn on your your lights in your house. Likewise, your bank should always be there. That was not the case 15 years ago with the global financial crisis. That that is the case now. And each year, the banks, the largest banks, are subject to a stress test. That, you know, in my view, the stress test is the combination of the last three recessions combined. And banks have to pass a scenario like that before they can even increase their dividend or anything like that. So once again, the key word here is resiliency. And look, this is not a zero defect industry. You know, the the banks and the overseers, look, they try to make no mistakes. But if you're going to take risk, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be losses. And there are going 
in some cases, be failures. So that's mm. just part of cost of doing the business, and that's part of having you know the, the capital markets and the economy, the, the way we function. And you have a twenty trillion dollar economy, and the banks are the heart of that. But you know that the heart surgeons did their job fifteen years ago, and you know the, the the banking industry is is pumping along strong. Yeah, I mean that goes back to your point that you made in the beginning, which is. Um, an idiosyncratic risk versus a systemic risk, which you're basically saying this simply isn't. Um, Your point about the big banks, I think, is important, too, because I mentioned at the beginning of my show that the top or the biggest four U.S. banks lost more than 50 billion dollars worth of um, value in, in the trading session yesterday, which is quite astonishing to me. Um, but we have a bigger backdrop here, which when we can talk about the macro. Um, is that a buying opportunity, Mike, based on everything that you're saying? Well, look, you have uncertainties here. You have the biggest pace of rate increases by the right. Federal Reserve in over four decades. And so you've seen the Fed go from zero to 5% in such a, a quick time frame. So you know, that does give investors pause. That does cause for stock sell-offs. And you have certain events like uh, with Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley moment, uh, it certainly gives people pause. But I think when all the dust settles, when you get through this period, and I don't mean a day or a week, but I'm saying over the next year, I think what you're going to see is that this is a tremendous buying opportunity for banks that are much more resilient, that if and when there is a recession, banks are going to exceed expectations. Uh, and that you're not going to see anything like you've seen in a recession, you know, for the last 50 years. This should be, you know, when I say this should be banks best recession as far as they perform in any period in the last half century. But that's going to take time to prove. Yeah, it's such a great point. Final quick question. There were noises and concerns when we saw the Federal Reserve and to your point, um, aggressively hiking interest rates. So I'm talking three quarters of a percentage point for, for all those occasions where they did and concerns that just for the financial system's plumbing, that that could cause some digestion issues. And we've never really been in a situation like this. So we sort of have to work out how the banking sector and how the financial system handles it. Any concerns for you on that, Mike? Sheer, just with the sheer um, sort of aggression that the Federal Reserve had to tackle inflation. Yeah, these are big body blows for, for the economy to take. Right. And to have rates go up so much, so fast, you're going to have you know, some uh, players experience pain. And you, you saw some in the crypto market. You see some with the fundraising for the, the private equity community. Really, you're seeing more issues outside of the banking industry. And the ricochet effect of that can come back and hurt the banks. Having said that, the banks have pushed off so much risk to the non-banks or what you call the the shadow banking industry. That's really the area where I think you have to watch the most. But as far as the regulated banks and a regulated industry, um, you know, customers um, and regulators and the government and taxpayers can feel a lot better. As far as stockholders, it's not been pretty uh, the last week, but that too should change uh, as you as the dust settles, in my view. Yeah, the calm words of uh, Mike Mayo there. And I agree with your point. There's plenty of areas um, elsewhere that you could look for trouble without necessarily looking at um, the financial sector and, and the listed banks. Mike, great to have you with us. Thank you for your wisdom. Mike Mayo there, the senior Thanks bank for analyst me. for Wells Fargo Securities. A pleasure, sir. Thank you.
Okay, coming up on First Move, Robust Rebound with Revenge Travel. We speak to the CEO of hotel giant IHG next. Welcome back to First Move. The leisure and hospitality sector leading hiring across the United States, adding 105,000 jobs net last month. It also happens to be one of the biggest markets for Intercontinental Hotels Group, or IHG. The firm franchises, leases, manages or owns more than 6,000 hotels globally. And brands that you may recognise include Holiday Inn and Intercontinental. The group reporting a resurgence in demand with revenue up 30% nearly in the Americas last year. It also is highlighting the opportunities in Greater China with the reopening post-COVID restrictions. And just today, the Chinese government has said group tours by Chinese travellers to more than 40 different countries could could soon restart. Joining us now is Keith Barr, CEO of IHG Hotels and Resorts. Keith, fantastic to have you on the show. You have had an astonishingly busy past year. I've been looking through the numbers. Um, just break it down for us in terms of the Americas, EMEA and Asia, of course. China, a hotspot too. Tell us what you're seeing and doing. Yeah. Well, good morning. It was a, a fantastic year for IHG, and I'm so proud of our team around the world. As you mentioned, our revenues grew by 33% year over year. Our profits were up by 55% year over year. And the second half was even stronger than 2019. So just sequential growth around the world. The Americas being the most fully recovered market uh, with the second half of last year ahead of 2019. Strong return of travel across Europe and Middle East, and then opening up in Asia in the second half. Of course, as you just mentioned now, Greater China, with the kind of the reversal of the zero COVID policy, has really sprung back to life in 2023 with an incredibly strong start to the year too. So travel is back. You know, 2020 and 2021 was the year of tech and goods, and now it's about services and travels out in front. Yeah, because the base on all of these numbers was clearly tough. What you're saying is revenge travel is a real thing. Do you expect it to, to continue and to increase in, in 2023? You know, we've been talking about <clears throat> the potential of a slowdown since the mm. second half of last year. And we saw it every <laughs> single month get stronger and stronger and stronger. Leisure travels up versus 2019. Business travels back to normal almost. Groups, meetings and events are happening. And it just seems to power on. And the, and the tailwind for the global travel industry will be, again, China reopening, Asia Pacific. Um, people want to travel. And our consumer research shows that travel is one of the last discretionary spending items that people will stop doing. So it gives us a lot of confidence about 2023 and this continuing to continue on. Yeah, I feel like after the last three years, it is something that people feel so passionately about um, and, and taking the opportunity while you can get it. It this sort of makes sense to me. Talk to me about... Greater China, because you have decided to make um, what you're describing, I think, as a full roster of new openings across 200 different um, cities over the course of the next year. Just talk to me about what you're seeing. And is this international travel into Greater China or for the most part? And if you can give me numbers, I would love to, to know um, Chinese tourism, sort of intra Chinese tourism. Yeah, I'd love to. It's a, it's a market that's near and dear to my heart. I lived there for almost five years and helped build that China business today. <clears throat> and the team are doing an extraordinary job. So some data points. Um, Chinese New Year was at to 90% of 2019 levels. And wow. I just talked to the team the other day and looking at January and February for the market, travels back to 96% of 2019 levels. So it's a phenomenally resilient market. 
And that's pretty much all domestic, because if you think about airlift capacity into China, it's probably only around 10 percent, and it's going to take time to come back. Those planes have been mothballed. Those pilots have been furloughed, potentially. So it's going to take a while to bring it back. So the Chinese are traveling. They're traveling in China. But that international inbound and that international outbound is going to take time to recover. And so the Chinese market probably won't fully recover until 2024, maybe beginning of 2025. But it's going to get pretty close in 2023, given the strength we're seeing so far. That's such an interesting point that you make, though. So what you're saying is actually the capacity is limited by the ability to travel to these places. So plane capacities and, and pilots rather than the desire and, and what's out there to go and to go and visit. Absolutely. I was talking to um, the CEO of one of the big Chinese travel companies and talking about digital search for international outbound travel from China is at or above 2019 levels already. So the Chinese <laughs> consumer wants to travel internationally. And those that are, are actually staying much longer. So they're doing much longer trips out of China because they haven't been able to leave for three years. And so they may be seeing family in other parts of the world or so forth, but definitely they want to travel. And again, that's gonna be a great tailwind for many, many international markets as that reopens and they get out of China. Interestingly, uh, Hong Kong is beginning to boom again because the Chinese have enabled the mainland China travelers to go with just their Chinese ID card versus passport. So we're mm. seeing China travel flood back into Hong Kong, which is fantastic because that market was really, really hard hit through COVID and lockdowns. Yeah, you know, that's such a fascinating insight into um, what we're sort of anticipating or predicting or guessing over um, the return of the Chinese consumer and, and how they behave. Um, let's talk about the United States specifically, because we did just get that jobs number and there's all sorts of debate over what the Federal Reserve's doing, the concerns about slowdown, as you talked about. It's been a challenge to hire people for, what, a couple of years now, Keith. Tell me what you're seeing today. Is it still challenging? It's getting better, which is great news. I mean, we have over 6,000 hotels, 1,800 hotels in development around the world in the U.S. <laughs> and in greater China, and, and we need people. And I took the jobs report in January and February as half full, not half empty. Because if you looked at it, and you mentioned in your opening, in the 517,000 jobs in January, 125,000 were in hospitality and leisure. And this month with the 300,000 jobs, I think it was 105,000 were in hospitality and leisure. And we're still not staffed back up to where we need to be. So from our perspective, it's actually disinflationary from a wage perspective is bringing people back into the workforce, enabling us to operate at full capacity and open up all these amazing hotels across our brands from Holiday Inn, Holiday Express up to Intercontinental and great resorts like Six Senses too. So uh, I'm excited to see the workforce grow in the sectors that really need people. Yeah, I mean, that, your point about the um, disinflationary trend of that, we also saw in the numbers with the average wage coming down. Um, you've said it, so now I've got to ask. How much more or less are you paying the people you're hiring today compared to those that you were hiring in 2019? I know it's difficult because it's some of its own, some of its franchisees, but can you give me any ballpark sense? It, it varies from market to market excuse me, around the world. Um, in, in the U.S., for example, we did see wage inflation, right? We saw minimum wages go up in certain states. Um, but the great thing about our business is we're able to price on a daily basis. Um, yeah. And so we saw our average rates rise significantly um, around the world, particularly in the leisure segment. So give you some data points. Um, leisure up 14% in rate. Uh, business travel up 7%. Groups, meetings, and events up 7% in rate too. And so while we are seeing inflationary pressure on wages, which are coming off now, we're able to price for that and really be able to drive performance in our hotels uh, and really make sure we can protect the profits of our owners and our franchisees. Keith, 
phenomenal to chat to you. Thank you so much. Um, great conversation. Thank you. We'll, um, we'll speak to you soon, no doubt. Keith Barr, the CEO of IHG Hotels and Resorts. Revenge travels real. That's the headline. <laughs> All right, coming up next, who will take home Hollywood's top prizes? We'll look at the contenders and possible last-minute surprises too. Oscar night just around the corner. Stay with us. You managing it? Welcome back to First Move. We're just days away from the biggest night of the year in Hollywood, and it's one that could make entertainment history. There could be big wins for everything, everywhere, all at once. Michelle Yeoh could become the first Asian woman to win Best Actress and only the second, actually, woman of colour in history after Halle Berry. While in the Best Actor category, Elvis star Austin Butler takes on fan favourite Brendan Fraser, who's making a stunning comeback with The Whale. The Oscars take place on Sunday evening in LA and we'll have all the action on Monday's first move. And finally, speaking of movies, a story that might remind you of the film Don't Look Up from a couple of years ago. Scientists say a newly discovered asteroid roughly the size of an Olympic swimming pool has a small chance of colliding with Earth. Not small. It could happen 23 years from now. OK, I've got time to work it out. On Valentine's Day, no less. How do they know that? But NASA says there's no reason to panic, saying the chance of collision is extremely low. Uh, the data geek in me wants more analysis on that, but we've got a few years to work it out. And finally, one last check of the markets. Wall Street, as you would imagine, is volatile and currently lower, as you can see. The Nasdaq, the underperformer, a continuation of the sizable losses we saw in the previous session, due in part to the funding crisis facing tech industry lender Silicon Valley Bank. Banking stocks, too, lower across the board as Silicon Valley Bank fights for survival. One of the biggest banking losers in the first few minutes of trade was First Republic Bank. Its shares also currently halted. SVB, for its part, remains halted for trading, too, with news pending. And the U.S. Treasury is saying it's aware of the situation and is in touch with regulators. All eyes on that. Any further updates, we'll bring them to you throughout programming. For now, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. I'm going to go and lie down now in a darkened room. Connect the World is up next. Have a great weekend. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.